I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 122 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is half of one of the all-time great two guitar tandems in rock, Richard Lloyd of Television. As Lloyd puts it in his memoir, Everything is Combustible, when he first saw Tom Verlaine perform in New York City in the early 1970s, he realized that he had something Verlaine needed, and Verlaine had something that he needed. Verlaine was a poet, songwriter, idiosyncratic singer, and brilliant guitarist who was keen on exploration. Lloyd was a lead guitarist who had learned almost literally at the feet of Jimi Hendrix and had a gift for composing melodic parts with unexpected twists and turns. When Verlaine and Lloyd joined forces, the results were combustible. Television was the house band at CBGB, the grungy East Village club that became the epicenter of New York's fledgling artsy punk scene. Bands such as the Patti Smith Group, the Ramones, Blondie, and Talking Heads followed in television's wake there. Billy Ficka was television's powerful, unpredictable drummer, and Richard Hell started out on bass before the less flashy, more skilled Fred Smith formerly of Blondie, took over. All four members were indispensable, but it was the guitar interplay between Verlaine and Lloyd that gave television that indelible sound that so many other bands would try to emulate. The 1977 debut album, Marquee Moon, was the masterpiece, and you can hear the brilliance from the first track, the often-covered See No Evil. As Verlaine jabs out the opening rhythm, Lloyd provides a dazzling counterpart that gets everything a swirl. Lloyd's solo, which takes melodic leaps that no one could anticipate, lifts the song to an even higher level. He discusses how he composed those parts here. He also, of course, digs into the title track, a 10-minute opus that, if they'd recorded nothing else, would have established this band's immortality. Lloyd and Verlaine each takes a solo in this one, their styles and counterpunches perfectly complementing one another. Marquee Moon has since been reissued numerous times, most recently as part of the Rhino High Fidelity series in an LP master by Carol Pop guest Kevin Gray. As Lloyd heard it, did he think when it was recorded that the album would live on this way? Why didn't he think the album's initial release captured the band's power? Why was he less thrilled with the follow-up album, Adventure? What term does he use to describe television's self-titled third and final studio album released after a 12-year break in 1990? What was his and the other band members' relationship like with Verlaine? How did Lloyd feel about television carrying on with guitarist Jimmy Ripp after he left the band in 2007? Was Lloyd in touch with Verlaine before Verlaine died in January of last year? Lloyd also has worked with other musicians, such as Matthew Sweet and John Doe. On Sweet's classic 1991 album, Girlfriend, Lloyd plays lead guitar on three standout tracks, Divine Intervention, I've Been Waiting, and Evangeline. What was Lloyd's working relationship like with Sweet? Lloyd tells how, at age 16, he got punched out by Jimi Hendrix. He also discusses the impact of drugs and alcohol on his life, and how he survived to keep recording and touring today. Prepare for elevation as you enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Richard Lloyd. Have you heard the new uh, Rhino High Fidelity version of Marquee Moon? Because you mentioned in Everything is Combustible. No, I have a copy of it, but my record player is no good. You had mentioned in the book that you felt like Marquee Moon never sounded like the way you guys sounded in the studio. 
That was sad. Vinyl records are literally a caveman approach to uh, transmitting musical information. I mean, after all, what is it? It's a piece of plastic with a ditch in it. And the needle goes along the ditch and bounces. And that turns into electrical energy. And then you've got uh, sound on the other side coming out of the speaker. But uh, the amount of quality information uh, that comes through a regular pressing is does not quite make the grade as far as if you've been in the studio and heard things. Now, I've heard the Japanese reissue and this one and that one, and uh, there's some very, very good versions out there. But I think this, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing this one. I've heard nothing but great things about uh, this, the fidelity, especially in the rhythm section. Yeah, no, Kevin Gray, who actually I just had him on the podcast recently, and we talked about it, and yep. it's it's yeah the the ba- the rhythm section sounds much fuller. It's less bright, so there's less high end on it and more sort of mid range depth to it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, remember we had Greg Calby do it. He's good, 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 good guy, but uh, it still came out a little brittle. Have you liked like the digital versions better? Like when you've heard it on CD. I don't know. I don't listen to it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've, it's it's like one one version of each of those songs that I've, we've played uh, hundreds of times. So it's just another version. Well, I, I was curious if you sort of feel in general that digital slash CDs are less caveman like than records, because there are a lot of you know well, audiophiles who are only into the 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 ditch and the needle. Right. The the uh, CD is a remarkable advance, could be a remarkable advancement in sound quality and, and in digital. So, but there's something about the analog signal and the mistakes that the uh, that it makes in transporting the information across uh, the the electronics really depends on your system how well something's going to sound yeah there's just a, a warmth to analog that digital so far i mean there are people who swear by sacds and that sort of thing which i don't have um but it seems like there's that that analog warmth that people sort of come back to even when they've gone to digital for a while well i live in the analog realm if i can help it did you ever imagine when you guys were recording Marky Moon that there would be so many different versions of it? I mean, I mean, there are all these name mastering engineers who've done it, Chris Bellman, Kevin Gray. You know, there's the double CD with the blue vinyl and Little Johnny Jewel on the second disc. And then there's this version, the high fidelity version. Yeah. Did you have that sense that what you were you were making music that was going to have that kind of lasting power? Yeah, I did. We made a great record. And it deserves to be heard. And I'm very find it rewarding that enough people of talent are also handing, you know, are also trying their hand at seeing what they can make out of the, the sound of the record itself. And that's fantastic. You get good stuff that way. 
in your book, you talk about seeing Tom Verlaine perform and realizing there's something I have that he needs and something he has that I need. The two of you only made three albums together, but do you feel like that was something that proved itself to be true, that really you guys did your best work with each other? Yeah, I mean, I think Marquee Moon itself, if that was the only thing we had ever done, that would stand as a uh, significant force in the change that was occurring in rock and roll in the 77, 78. Part of what's fascinating about that is that you guys are associated with the punk scene and basically launched CBGBs yourselves, but you have have this epic 10-minute song that's, you know, just fantastic and is like the opposite of, you know, the Ramones Minute 58 songs. No, it's a little... The Marky Moon itself, the song, is built like a symphony. It has parts and sections and... And it follows, I mean, it's not completely improv. It's uh, really rather structured. If you were able to listen to, you know, a number of live versions, you'd hear the same thing. You'd start to recognize the platforms and the the classical nature of the the, uh, rise. Well, you have this solo after the second chorus that's very compact and very melodical and then then tom has this solo after the third one that just goes on and and it's this more kind of improvised feels like a more improvised solo is that is that a good contrast of the two of you that yours was yeah. a little tighter and more melodic and maybe more composed yeah well when we first joined uh, when i first met tom and we talked about putting a band together. I, and they said they were looking for a really uh, dumb rhythm guitar player. And I said, well, as a rhythm guitar player, I'm very dumb, but I'm not a rhythm guitar player. I'm a lead player, and I'm interested in single notes. And uh, this is what I've studied and what I know. And it worked out perfectly because what happens was when Tom would sing, he would resort to basic cowboy chords. Do you know what cowboy chords are? They're the ones with open strings and down by the nut, just in first position. Okay. And uh, he would use those, you know, to support his singing. Then there was an entire missing element on top where I would put lead lines in between the vocal or I would write stuff to support the underlining, uh, really a simplicity of what Tom would do. If you look at the See No Evil, uh, you got Tom's part is a simple octave going da 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 And ain't that nothing goes da-da-da-da-da-da. And that's all Tom plays, really, while he's doing the verses and stuff. So there's a lot for me to be uh, cognizant of. You know, there's a lot for me to do. So in Seed No Evil, is that you coming up with? No, 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 no. That's me. And then you also have the solo in that, which is also, again, a very melodic, you know, memorable solo. Well, I try to put things in perspective and, you know, not just have a uh, a balls to the wall guitar solo, but something that has a a 
something that has melodic interest of its own in it. I mean, a bridge, which is what, really what a guitar solo is, is part of a bridge. You know, you got to work to do something a little different than just... I mean, it's a great guitar solo that repeats the vocal line perfectly. And, you know, with its own uh, machination, in other words, the vibrato of the guitar and stuff like that changes. But uh, and that's one wonderful way to, to fill a guitar break. The other is to just completely in another direction. Right. To to use one of the, the the chord tone notes, the one, three, or the five as a beginning, rather than on the one, you know, build them to the one, you build to the five or two or three. You get a lot of different interesting things going on. Well, and you have these these just sort of swoops of melody too. I mean, I, again, the solo of See No Evil, you know, it just it sort of just leaps this octave. It sort of goes to places that sound totally right, but if you gave it to you know a hundred other guitarists, they wouldn't go there. Like it's it's not the expected move, but it sounds just right for that song. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. So when you're coming up with that, are you coming up with that with you guys in the studio or in a rehearsal room, and you're playing it, and you're kind of trying to figure out what you want to play? Or are you actually sort of being at home? on your own, composing it, and then coming in with that? It's both. When you get to a certain point in the studio and the, pretty much everything is done except maybe the last parts of a song, and the lead guitar is one of the last things to go on as an overdub. Usually. I mean, you can get it off the cuff, but for me, it's easier to go over uh, eight bars, you know, a number of times just to let me find that magic sort of pathway from the top to the bottom of the guitar solo. I mean, you had been playing a lot of these songs live well before you went to the studio to record them anyway. So are you working those out live or, or again, is it like you've been playing them live and then you're coming in and go, going, hey, I got a different guitar solo for this song this time? Not really. Once we have things, I mean, we rehearsed six days a week, five to seven hours a day for a couple of years, as well as all the shows that we put on. Um, you know, and we were at CBGB's four nights in a row, often, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And, uh, and that was absolutely imperative with that we needed a place that we could call our own, that we could be the house band because nobody else would really want it. We found a place, uh, you know, on the Bowery, full of Skid Row people, down and down and out, down on their uh, luck, and uh, so it was this kind of sketchy place to think to, about going to. But when you went there, you found out these people weren't like they're not mad rabid uh, thieves that grab you and shake you down for a quarter. I mean, they're soft people. They're like, beg. They're trying to get up $2 for a bottle of rock gut. And, you know, it's all very sad. And CBGB's was underneath a flop house. 
So, and I'm not kidding. The roof would sometimes leak from upstairs and urine and wine would spill mm. through in the floor on the second floor where the flop house was. And I remember one time coming down and little drips of wine and urine and mixed hitting my microphone and the sparks flying off and I'm supposed to sing on it. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those scenes. Meanwhile, the Saluki dog that Hilly owns is, has craps on the stage. So we got to clean that up before we can play. That was the kind of place it was. Did, Most did, amazing. You see people come from, uh, I saw a group from Paris come in with their luggage. And they, they, before they went to the hotel, they stopped at CBGB's, came in and says, and I heard them go, these, the famous CBGB's, this, this is a dump. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like you're goddamn right. It's a dump. That where, where do you where do you grow uh, the lotus flower in right. the mud, in the shit, in the mud? So how much did that atmosphere affect the music you were making? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if you could have been in some very posh, you know, place doing the same thing, and problem, you know, you, you would think on some level, and I don't know what, it might have sounded different. I just sounded different, but no, we were ragged in the beginning. You know, we were just uh, trying. Luckily, the, the the right four guys got together. I mean, Tom didn't want Billy Ficka to play with. In the first week, Tom took me aside and said, listen, I'm sorry. I thought this guy was a rock drummer, but now he's turned into a jazz drummer and it's driving me crazy. And he did audition other drummers. And I always said, no, 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 no. Billy's, Billy's got it. You have to let that craziness happen in the polyrhythm and all of that because a, a great guitarist needs a great drummer. Can survive, can survive with everything else, but you can't survive without a great drummer and a guitarist together. Because that's what that's what makes it up. You know, you can live without a bass, can live without horns, can live without everything else, but you gotta have a guitar and a, and drums or piano and drums, but you know, you gotta have one main melodic instrument and hopefully two parts that interlock and then uh, then you've got songs at the beginning of songs. Right. I think I'd, I'd heard years ago that the take of Marquee Moon was one, it was sort of like, oh, we're just going to run through it, just try whatever you want, and that that ended up being the finished take, um, you know, and that Billy was was kind of going nuts on the drums and sort of trying out a lot of stuff, assuming you guys weren't going to use the take, and then it was like, no, nope, that's perfect. Oh, he does all the time. You can't stop him from doing that. We used to rehearse, and Billy would take a drum solo, and we would leave the rehearsal space and go eat hamburgers and drink coffee and come back an hour later and Billy's still flailing <laughs> away. It was wonderful, really, in a sense. Couldn't get him to stop. Was CBGB kind of your, you know, like what Hamburg was to the Beatles? It's sort of, sort of where you guys did yeah. your 10,000 hours? Well, I know that uh, we played a place called uh, Club 82, in the basement, run by Bull Dykes, and they had great 
weird rock stuff going on and television played their number times. One time when television was playing there, John Lennon came to see us and apparently he didn't say hello. So, uh, you know, he was just there for a while and then he left. But what we heard was that he had said that uh, he had really enjoyed it. It reminded him of the Beatles in Hamburg. Wow. The kind of enthusiasm on stage no matter what the audience was thinking, we were having a blast. When you were learning guitar, did you imagine being in a band like television, or were you thinking you'd be doing something a little more blues-rocky? No, I thought I'd be in a band called television. Just I didn't like know that. called television. I just knew I was going to be in one band was going to, that was going to make it, and it was going to have a real impact on the history of rock and roll in one shape, way, or form, or another. And that's what happened. I'm you, a strong believer in wish. Right. And with dedicated uh, intention. Yeah, you talk a lot about that in your book, and, and just sort of the sense of like not, you know, not having regrets, everything is sort of meant to be as it is, and letting yourself go to whatever is going to happen. Were you learning more on kind of a blues rock sort of way to play and did you sort of find another way to play as you know you went along blues rock is always there it's easy to learn it's easy to play it's easy to get caught in a it's more difficult to find your way around other melodic pathways that aren't rhythm and blues necessarily you learn from your friend uh, Velvet Turner. You, you write a lot about him, and yeah. he was friends with Jimi Hendrix. Did you feel like there was this kind of Hendrix line going into whatever you were doing? Absolutely. Uh, Jimi was so powerful in his person and his guitar playing instantaneously that it was uh, a miracle to behold. I mean, it's uh, what he brought was something that had never been like that before. I mean, if you think about his opening salvo in uh, in America, which was uh, Purple Haze, I think was the first song in America that went well for him. And uh, it starts with a tritone, which is the devil's interval, which is like the most forbidden interval to be played in music and forbidden to, because it's the entrance point of evil and all this other shit. Mm. And he uses it to great advantage at the very beginning of uh, Purple Haze. And then later on, you know, you realize he's made a, uh, just out of that statement, you know, he's like, hello, I'm here. And nobody else knows what I know. And, uh, he, he was teaching Velvet how to play guitar, basically. And Velvet uh, and I were best friends. So Velvet would come. Jimmy lived about five blocks from my house, where I lived when I was a, in junior high school and high school. And uh, so we'd see him around town walking with his girlfriend or just walking. And in New York, you can do that. You know, you can be a star and not get bothered too much anyway that's what happened and then Velvet would come over to my house all excited and uh, he didn't have a guitar at the time I had one 
So we would sit on my uh, bed and he would show me what Jimmy was showing him. And then I would try it and then he would try it again. And then, you know, back and forth and other things we, we did really silly, uh, silly exercises like playing the guitar with your arm out stretch and in order to do a higher chord you had jump and grab uh try that <laughs> your arm will fall off in a, in five minutes but we did all kinds of crazy little things like that little magic most of us have just heard Hendrix through his records. You saw him up close live numerous times. What right. did you get from seeing him that close up and live that, you know, the rest of us would never have gotten? When he first came over, it was like watching a nuclear reactor on stage. I mean, that's what it was like. It was like your eyes bugged out from what he was doing, you know, in the theatrical sense. But not only that, but the music was like in a way we never heard before. That distortion he made natural it wasn't. And he made he pulled it down from the sky or so or whatever, you know? I mean you had the feeling like you were really seeing this like otherworldly force when you were seeing him live. Yep. And as well with other groups. I mean you could see when people hit their stride. When they were in the, the zone, as it were, and the music would take over and the music plays the people rather than the people play the music. And I see that, you know, I see when that turnover happens and then things get exciting. How long do you feel like uh, television was in that zone? Pretty much from the beginning. We used to literally uh, laugh and fall on the ground and... Uh, you know, writhe on the floor like little uh, worms, literally, you know, mm -hmm. and goofing off and, uh, you know, writhing on the floor. You can see pictures of it or our re first rehearsals. There's a, there's a uh, video audio of it. You can see, uh, <laughs> you can see Tom struggling with Richard. <laughs> couldn't play bass and had to learn every single note one by one. Richard Held we're talking about, not Richard Lloyd. No, we're talking about Richard Held. That was difficult, but it also kept us in rehearsal all the time. To go back to Hendrix, there's this one scene in your, your book where all of a sudden he just like punches you and it's it's like the sort of like the demons took over or something. Like, Were you able to make sense out of that and did it matter? Well, alcohol, one. Two, I mean, we were all drunk on rosé and Matus wine and uh, what's the other one? Lancers. Those were the liquors available. Jimmy was into that Portuguese sparkling wine at the time. So there was a lot of that. And we were drunk. Drunk people tend to have bad reactions to things. <laughs> so there was that. Then there was the fact that he he took what I said. I wasn't going to say anything. I just accidentally got seated next to him. And if it were me, I would have been at the table, but not right sitting next to him. But he turned and started to talk to me with his uh, rings of Saturn and the... Uh, you know, the, the moons of Pluto and all of this uh, 
psychedelic space talk and called me Mickey Mouse, which I later found out meant fake, you know, plastic fake from Mickey Mouse. And uh, when then they uh, turned the lights on and everybody had to go. It was like four o'clock in the morning. We all got up, put our clothes, shook our jackets on. And Jimmy put his jacket on and turned around and socked me three times. His face, the stomach, and the face. And I sat. All I did was sit down. And then I heard somebody say, somebody tried to beat up Jimmy. We'll kill him. And I thought, well, that's me. I'm just a, a fucking 16-year-old. I didn't do shit. <laughs> so I just sat there, let everybody else out of the club. And I left. And when I left, Jimmy was still there waiting for me to apologize. And he did, you know, uh, grab my hands and cried on him and apologized and all of this shit. And I kept saying, Jimmy, you know, you're, we're, we're all drunk. Just go home, get some rest. Yeah. You know, it's okay. Everything's okay. And you were so young at that point, too. Yeah. Not so young without maturity. You lived a lot at, at the age of 16. Mm-hmm. How much did, you know, drinking <laughs> drugs, how much did that affect your creativity at this point? And, you know, just in those years in television. Well, in the beginning, drugs are fabulous. They show you and they open doors to a um, creativity that one might have in one that one can't quite reach without help. Now you can get help from a much better guitarist who teaches you. And if you can go that route, that's the, probably the finest route to go. But the other route is does have drugs in it. It's a left-handed path in life. It's like a yoga. And one has to just understand that they're in they're going to be swimming in dangerous waters. There's no guarantee that you're going to get out of it. Right. Well, and you had some close calls. I always had a flange of guardian angels who refused to let me go. And I mean, to, I would have gone a couple of times of my own, you know, mis, what you, misadventures, but it didn't happen. And here I am. Yeah, I think there was one one in England, sort of later on, where you sort of oh, yeah. you were given something that was wrong, and then the next thing you knew, they were cutting your very nice shirt off. Well, I woke up and it was very lovely. Uh, I took a little heroin, and it was much too strong, and I just not fell over, turned blue. They uh, luckily called the ambulance and got me to the hospital, and they defibrillated me three times and brought me back. And the next day I was upset because I woke up, I felt great. Uh, it looked at the ceiling was white, everything is white. Uh, turns out I was in the hospital. I didn't know it. All my clothes were ripped up. Uh, been, they'd been um, scissored off. They cut my clothes to get my chest to be able to defibrillate me. Right. So first I, the doctor came over and he was like, right. So what's the problem, right? And I said, well, look, you've ruined all my clothes. And, what am I <laughs> and he says, well, let me tell you something. When you came in, you were dead. 
we didn't have time to undress you in your fantastic garb. So we cut it. And I hope you don't mind how we saved your life. You didn't come back right away. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, whoops. <laughs> Pardon me. It's like, okay, my bad. My bad, doctor. I'm sorry. <laughs> Carol Pop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. Revolution just introduced a premium lager called Cold Time. It's an all-malt beer featuring Midwest two-row barley, Mexican lager yeast, a touch of German hops, and pure Great Lakes water. It's packaged brewery fresh and never pasteurized. The brewed low and slow badge on the can attests to a slow, lower temperature fermentation that mellows the beer for a smoother, more flavorful sip. Cold Time is available in 12 packs of 12-ounce cans. Television made Adventure, which only came out a year after Marquee Moon. I think you guys came up with like mostly new songs instead of sort of playing other stuff that you've been playing live. Um, like what was what's the new guys? Who's Tom? Who's Tom? All right, all right. Let's be Tom let's be straight about Tom. it. We we had maybe uh, fifteen more songs we could have put on a second record. Of those, probably three got on the record. All of the rest were like new machinations of Tom's. And uh, he was writing the songs in the studio where it would cost a fucking fortune for him to dick around for basically six months spending our money, you know, doing his thing. I'm not that great a fan of adventure as it is. You thought some of the songs were too silly. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'd have ever said that. But yeah, I can't help but agree with you. Tom did have, I mean, he's one of the funniest people I'd ever known. Wonderful sense of humor. Uh, very de deflective and defensive. And, uh, you know, get him out of any kind of trouble by, any, by disassociating himself. Uh, from any kind of problem. And that's what it was like. It was difficult. But he was the, the, the leader of the band, and the rest of us didn't realize that he didn't think of it as a band. He thought of it as just his group of people he was hiring. And he tried to get signed by himself, and Electra said, no, we're signing a band. We're not signing you. You're an individual. We're not interested in, in solo acts. We're signing bands. and We're signing all four television members, which is why I got to do Adventure. I mean, um, Alchemy. Right. Because I was under that same contract, which was the first solo because, album you did. Yeah, the first solo album. I could have made like six more for them, but it just didn't work out at the time. It sounds like there are some parallels with a band that, from from your book, it sounds like Tom thought was kind of ripping you guys off on some level, which is Talking Heads. Who uh, absolutely? You also had, you know, David Byrne, who had the sort of quirky, you know, vocal delivery, and you had the other three members who maybe, you know, some of them at least felt like they weren't getting their due as, you know, being as important as the lead guy. 
Mm. Well, the lead, there always has to be a lead guy. You know, the mouth of the band and all of that. And you have to have a you have to have a cohesive political outlook. In other words, uh, I disagree with Tom a lot. I did. I disagreed with him a lot. Uh, he would say no. I would say we should do this. He would say no, and his foot came down, and then that was that. It used to be we voted, and if two people wanted, and the if three people wanted to do something, and one didn't, we did it anyway. You know, Tom would agree to that. But eventually, it got to, to the point when Tom wanted to vote, vote in a half. Then he wanted veto power. Then he wanted just to be able to, and, and ended up with him just being able to say no to all sorts of stuff. Like we were supposed to go, we were in Athens and we had two days off and we were supposed to go to Moscow and play with Jeff Beck. And Tom said, no, he didn't want to get up out of bed for the travel. Was this a gig that was scheduled and canceled or something he just wouldn't schedule in the first place? It got canceled. Yeah. Before advertisement went out, but, you know. I mean, was that the downfall of of television that no. you, know, you guys weren't a group? It was, you know, it was too much one guy and, and you guys were all at odds with each other or with him? It wasn't a matter of so much being at odds with anybody. We all, I mean, we had one vision and we all wanted to see that vision and be enlarged in the in the presence of the populace, those who listen to the music. But as far as I was concerned, the uh, Marquee Moon was a, a, a perfect record, really, in a sense. It, then Adventure, it's all discombobulated. And by the time you get to that third uh, television record, the eponymous one, it's very much for me what you might call television light. I don't know why it couldn't have the kind of verve and uh, fire and uh, some of the same emotive parts that Marky Moon had, you know, that, where there was a real thrust through the song. It got very lazy towards the end. And that was one where you guys hadn't made an album in 12 years, because that was 1990, and you had gotten back together and you'd made the album just called Television. Given that you'd waited this long to make, make an album, why didn't it have whatever ingredient element from you know the original television that would, you would have liked to see it have? Tom. Uh, Tom's design, you know. Uh, he assumes the role of leadership and uh, uh, begins to have... You know, a lot of the things that he he holds out for turn out to be positive for all of us. I mean, he, Tom, is the reason that we did well financially because he didn't take any low ball offers. And, uh, and that part was good, certainly good, because uh, musicians get shafted left, right, and center all the sure. time. But uh, 
We didn't that much, but we shafted ourselves, if you want to say it. That's just how he wanted it to sound, and he just didn't want that kind of more explosive interplay that you'd had previously? I guess he just wanted to play, you know, um, these little ditties. I love on his thing, the Yankee time, a joke song. Right. And it's, uh, it's terrific. Really funny, different. That could have gone on a television record. I don't have got a problem with that. I like to, to support Tom's expression because the guy's a genius verbally. His poems that go on the in uh, if you read the liner notes of Marky Moon, which has those, the lyrics on it, they're fantastic. They're very, very, very good. And there's no reason that should have stopped, but, you know, people run out of ideas. And I think Tom ran out much earlier than anyone would have liked. When you were playing live around that time, did it feel like the old days in terms of, you know, being on stage, did you did you get the same thing out of it? Yeah, we did that 1990s record, but then we toured it for like 12 years or more. 1990 and 2007, when I left the band. And we played more then than we'd ever played. And my own talents came into a real strong four. So... I wasn't going to argue about that. Those 2007 records, uh, the one, the eponymous record, sounded to a lot of those songs worked really well live. Was there ever any thought to doing a fourth uh, studio record? No, didn't ever get to that. Is that because of like and lack the, of songs or lack of, you know? When I left, when well, for the past... Ten years at least, I'd been told we were going into the studio, and we never did. Then after I left the band, I heard there was a, uh, they went into the studio, they did all these cuts, and I know from having uh, demos done at my, my little studio that Tom won't put any vocals on because he didn't want anybody doing anything with anything. So they have this uh, <laughs> they have this nearly completed without me with Jimmy Rip and uh, you know it never came out right and I didn't didn't think it would which is one of the reasons I left I saw them with Jimmy Rip and no offense to Jimmy Rip but I felt like I wasn't really seeing television because you weren't there oh. well thank you I feel the same way. When you left, did you think television would keep going without you? Or like, what was the, the no, impetus at that point? I had no thoughts, but I didn't think that they would try to continue television. I thought they would revert to, you know, Tom Berlain band. And uh, who she, he had done several times and done okay with. But actually, nobody wanted to see Tom. They wanted to see television. And, you know, not that many people want to see me. <laughs> compared to who would want to see television. I mean, it's just, that's the name of the game. Right. So, but even Tom suffered from that, suffers from that. 
you did that television record, but then you did this fantastic album, Girlfriend, with Matthew Sweet, right. um, which starts off with the song Divine Intervention, which was like, just sort of knocked me out the first time I heard it. And I looked down and there's you playing guitar on that. Um, right. So tell me about the creative work that went into, I mean, you were, you're on a few songs on that. You're on, I've been waiting also and Evangeline is he presenting the songs to the band and are you just sort of working stuff out? Like, are you, did you come up with that indelible riff that starts the song and the album, you know, with the divine intervention? Uh, I'm the counterpoint. Right. So, so he's he, the, the first thing you hear is him. Right. That makes sense. The second thing you hear is me. So you're the, And then you're, and you're actually on Matthew Sweet's previous album, Earth, but there was some sort of quantum leap between from that album, which sounds still kind of 80s. Drum machines and, you know, real sterile stuff on Earth. I like it, though. That's some good stuff. Well, what was it like working with Matthew Sweet on those records? Well, the thing is that he was in the Golden Palominos for a while. Right. Bass. And the Golden Palominos guitarist quit. And I got a call asking me if I could learn 17 songs in three days because they needed this uh, guitar player replaced. So I said, sure, as long as uh, I don't have to learn 17 songs separately, you just give me keys and tell me what the general structures are and I'll put something down and it'll be all right, which is what happened. And Matthew was easy to work with. Because I did all the leads and he did all the rhythm, and he didn't want to take a lead, so he didn't. So I was just Mister Ace Ace Fireman. Was there any formula to like which songs you were on or which songs Robert Quine was on? No, sometimes he had us do both and then figured it out later which one. Into L.A. or whatever, or uh, Atlanta where he was working one time on that uh, 100% fun thing. And uh, then we would work on a number of songs. There was a certain um, thing that he had fallen in love with, with uh, Robert Quine, yeah. And some of his songs, uh, Matthew definitely wanted, wanted him on. Others he wanted me on, others he didn't know. So it was like that. Right. Well, you're on some really good ones. Um, yep. And you wrote that on 100% Fun that Robert Quine had a falling out with him because he thought they mixed the guitars too low. Yeah, sad thing. That was the end of them. And you, you also talked about working with John Doe. Was that a yeah. similar kind of set setup, or how, what was he like to work with? Oh, he was not. Everybody I've worked with has been terrific. Just absolutely, uh, you know, up to par. And, uh, you know, okay, the funniest thing was when um, I came back to New York and then John Doe's management, this cigar-smoking sort of California, Hollywood manager type, and he said, uh, I got a great opportunity for you. We're making a uh, video of one of the songs from Meet John Doe, rather, sorry, his first record, which I'm on. And uh, we need you for the uh, video, and we can fly out here, and uh, that'll be that'll be that. And I said, "Well, what's the pay? You have to pay me 
like for a day's work. And the guy goes, uh, this would be good for your career. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, no, no. Having me in the video with is what is worthy. You know, you pay me or not. And he started yelling at me and I hung up. So fine. Uh, 15 minutes later, the phone rings again. It's him. He's calmed down. We start again. I hang up on him this time. There you go. Then we had a third. He rings again, and we came to terms. He, he uh, did pay me. Yeah, you need you need at least two hang-ups in a successful negotiation. Something like that. It worked out, but it was a pretty stupid day. Were you in touch with uh, Tom at the end? No. Hadn't talked to Tom in a, nine years or so. Were you, were you shocked by that news? No. Sad, but something inevitable. Right. Tell me about the music that you're you're doing. Are you are you working on new albums now? I mean, you've been pretty prolific lately. Well, I've been playing out a lot, like every every other season. I'm going out in uh, March and April, and I don't know what happens after that. I don't have a record company right now, and I have no real interest in uh, trying to put together some kind of an act of where I am now is Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it's a wonderful town and has a lot going for it, but it doesn't have a real scene, musical scene. So either I've got to build one for myself or do as I do, which has been, I go to New York use that as my base of operations and then do touring from then. We're going to go into uh, upper New York state and Canada this time, as well as New York city and uh, a few other places around there. What's your ideal setup for performing live now? Like you and how many people? Oh, I'm in a trio. I've dropped the second guitars because I can never find anybody good enough. That's what I was wondering. Is it because because I, I thought you were doing a trio, and I thought at the same time you you really like playing off of other people. I do, but you know what can you do when you can't find the right people? Then there was COVID, and it destroyed. You know, one guy after another would drop out, and then I'd have uh, it was a nightmare on the road with people getting COVID and having to be replaced, and finally the. Bass player got really sick, had to drop out. So I moved the guitar player, the second guitar player, into the bass position. And we did the last three dates as a trio. And it worked out just so well that I thought, well, I should just keep doing this because I cover most of the important stuff. The only reason you'd need a second guitarist is for those. There are a few television songs that cannot be performed with one guitar. They're just too broken into shards. So uh, I do other songs that I can cover, like See No Evil and uh, most of the other songs of Marquee Moon and Ain't That Nothing from Adventure. Right. And the ones that I can do, you know, by myself, uh, I give Tom's part to the bass basically, mm. uh, because at times it's just octaves and uh, simple chord structures. 
Right. So the song Marquee Moon, is that one of those that you can't do? Or do you try to do that one? I used to do it when I had a second guitarist. Right. But, but without a second guitarist, there's just no way to do it. I've tried. Do you hear a lot of music and think, oh, these guys are totally influenced by what we were doing in television? Oh, yeah. I hear it all the time, all the place, all over the place. Too many to, you know, to articulate and mention. Just it's reached the ordinary practice of rock and roll to follow some of the things that we set out. Do you know, we went to the record company early on and asked them if they could please support us in uh, allowing us to, you know, fronting us some money so we could buy T-shirts that would be advertising items for the record. That would be good, having people build like billboards on the right. check. Then, uh, second, uh, it's a way for the band to make a little extra money on the road. And uh, thirdly, it's good for the company. And uh, they said, "Oh no, we're not in the we're not in the uh, business of making clothing. We're mm-hmm. in the record business. So forget that." Then we said, "Well, look." You're never going to get good airplay on AM radio. I mean, on uh, FM radio. Why don't you send a copy of our record to college radio where they have free open playbooks? And maybe we can get some play there in college. And they went, oh, no, college doesn't sell records. And this is like three years later. Everybody was selling merchandise. Right. Everybody, every yep. record company wanted a piece of everything. And it was just a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, merch will never be a thing. <laughs> I think when you put that album on, it doesn't sound dated at all. I think it totally has all the same energy, uh, probably from when you recorded yeah. it. And, you know, unlike so much other stuff you hear that's time stamped and, and you just sort of realize it's one of these timeless records, but you know, when yeah. you made it, you had the record company arguing with you over t-shirts. That's true. That's true. But we also had them arguing with me over, uh, over us, over who was going to produce the record and stuff like that. And we didn't want a producer because we'd gone that route with, uh, Brian Eno bringing and being brought in by Richard Williams, and that was a, not going to happen. And then, you know, all the producers who wanted to stamp their producer stamp on shit and change stuff. Right. We're not going to, we weren't going to put up with any of that. So we made the record we wanted to make, and in the space we wanted to make it in. Found out later that the reason Tom and Fred who had been looking at studios and picked the one that we went to A&R studios on 48th street, uh, based on the shape of the studio room, which was about the same size and shape as the loft in which we rehearsed. So we were comfortable, you know, in that space and did a number of the songs. Uh, basics live had everybody play and if there was a mistake we, we fixed it but sometimes it wasn't do you go back to those live records like you know there's the blow up for instance which you know sort of notoriously like great performance you know captured in pretty low fidelity and 
you know, does, does anyone sort of look back on those and think, oh, maybe we could use some, you know, modern AI technology or something to try to soup those up? And, you know, I is there is surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't happen. Are you, in, are you involved in any of that stuff? Those not, discussions? Not at the moment. No, I don't own the uh, masters. In the meantime, do you still write songs? Like, do you do you have any sort of routine? Do you enjoy writing songs? Are you... You know, like yeah, what, is, what, what is your routine as a musician like now when you're home in Chattanooga? I, I practice mostly electric guitar. I practice every day. It's right here next to me on both sides, a guitar, one over my head. <laughs> no, I got a bunch of guitars hanging on the walls and on this floor and on the ceiling more than I can play. And uh, they're terrific, so I do that. And then I have an acoustic guitar, which I barely touch. It's just uh, in my nature to like the electricity. Which is the go-to guitar, the one that you pick up every day? Oh, it's a Stratocaster at the moment, a blue uh, sea green or something like that. Is it one that you had for a long time? Not really. It's pretty new. It's a Jeff Beck model of a Stratocaster. Nice. Do you like being out leading a band? I do. Very much so. It's a, it's a good living. It's difficult. Because you're spending 23 hours of the day waiting for one hour to play. And those times are can be tiring. But uh, generally... Playing in front of people is so remarkably uh, medicinal in a way that uh, I, I still love it. Well, great. Well, I'm really happy that you're uh, still out there doing it. Um, you know, you've made a lot of great music that I've, you know, still get a lot, lot of enjoyment and uh, much more out of. Um, and I appreciate you talking to me. Okay, sounds right. good. Bye, bye, right. Mark. That's all for episode 122 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Richard Lloyd for taking us deep into some of the greatest guitar rock ever made. You can follow him on Facebook and Instagram. He's Mr. Underscore R Underscore Lloyd on the ladder. His 2017 memoir, Everything is Combustible, is hard to find at a reasonable price, but I tracked down the paperback at barnesandnoble.com and it's still there. The audiobook and Kindle version are available on Amazon. The Rhino High Fidelity pressing of television's Marquee Moon is still available at store.rhino.com. Record Store Day on April 20th will feature Live at the Academy, a limited edition album of a live 1992 television appearance. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Wake, who proves it every week. We encourage you to support Carol Pop so we can keep this podcast free and sustainable. Now you can become a Carol Pop friend for a mere $24. Contribute at carolpop.com and I'll read your name on a future episode. Like Will Martin, who just supported us. Thanks, Will. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, X, and Instagram at Carol Popcast. And you could follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.